Hello, my name is Zach Van Cleek, and this is The Night Watch. It has to come from your heart and soul. It has to. Otherwise, you're giving them dosages of medication every two hours, and you're turning them every two hours, and you're making sure their lips are moist. But you're not touching their soul. That's my mom, Amy Van Cleek. She is essentially responsible for The Night Watch. Her entire life, as well as my father's, were spent serving the needy, from daycares to juvenile services to the elderly. They've run the spectrum from youth to elderly, discovering the needs and solutions to those needs and humanity. I feel privileged sitting down and talking to my mom about these things, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome. So I am talking with Amy Van Cleek. She is my mom. Uh, she has worked with elderly for, what, what is it? 16 years. Um, and then she, before that, she worked with delinquent youth. And before that, she and my father both ran daycares. So they have worked in the capacity of taking care of others for a super long time. So uh, this is also the person who was the voice of episode three, talking about the passing of artists. Um, and how long ago was that? Was Artist, the story of artists. Man, artist was early on in my career, maybe 12, 14 years ago, something like that. Yeah, because in the thing you mentioned that, like, you had learned a lot <laughs> since then. Do you know what? Artist what? was my first. Was that she really? to me. You know how when you're processing something, mm-hmm. something comes to you? She was our very first resident that passed away at Maranatha Manor when I was the director there. And it was really brave because we didn't know what we were doing, but we really, she had no family and we wanted to do this for her. I completely forgot that till right now. So 16 years ago. So you really did learn a lot since then. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. So 16 years ago, um, you you just started at this thing. You got the job uh, because of your relationship with them because of Grandpa Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Jane in that facility. So like, how was that, what was that like when you first started taking on that banner of being in charge? Cause like in, before that, I mean. Oh, um, so there was a period of time where I started collecting information about, because I wanted to be own a little place like Maranatha Manor. Um, I didn't dream I would be Maranatha Manor that I would run, but as, as my husband was finishing his master's degree, um, he kept telling me that the next chapter was mine, and I knew that's what I wanted to do with the next chapter because I'd gotten to know Maranatha Manor when my dad had dementia and had to stay there. Um, my mom was in the hospital. My brother and I flew down. He took care of mom. I took care of dad, and I fell in love with Maranatha Manor, and I also sort of fell in love with the idea of caring for someone with dementia, with brain failure, because my dad had Alzheimer's. Um but that's that's what started it. And um, at some point after that, I was visiting, and the manager came to me and said, would you like my job? And I didn't even skip a beat. I felt <laughs> kind of bad in hindsight, like, yeah, I want your job. I mean, <laughs> I had a whole file of how to open a little boutique-style assisted living in the state of Florida. Like, why would I not just want to run this one? How much easier is that, right? So it sort of unfolded that way, and um, it really ended up, 
cool because I ended up getting my license. I had to fly down from Indiana to Florida. I got licensed as a assisted living administrator and my mother was, my mother had cancer. She hadn't really accepted that. So of course we, she hadn't admitted it to us. And it turned out as I was looking at moving, we were realizing like she had cancer. Like it wasn't like it was just starting. She was a trooper and a tenacious lady and she hit it really well. Um, but I was down here training and got to know the people that were her friends because I ran back and forth a little bit to Sebring, like an hour and a half or two hour drive to check on her and grew to realize how bad it was. And so she was actually my first experience with hospice and death and dying outside of Maranatha Manor. All right, so, so you, you felt comfortable with that then? Like you going through that, you kind of felt like... All right, I, this is not too much of a hurdle for me. Or were you overwhelmed at that point? No, I wasn't comfortable. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, I had a false sense of what hospice does. They don't do nearly as much as I had pictured. And that's one of the things that I hope to be able to offer people, even listening to this podcast, is um, you're not going to be good at this until you've already done it. So get info from those who've been there. Because hospice is a support. They're not the lifeline you think they're going to be. Unless your person fails in a way that lets them go to the hospice house, and then it's amazing. The support is amazing for the hospice house. But anyway, that I, I'm pretty much a trooper. I'm pretty brave. Um, I told my brothers, "Don't I got this? Don't worry about it. You guys go." The family always got together every year at a lodge, and that, that was that weekend. And I said, "You guys go be together. Um, I got this. I've got hospice." And and then it began because I didn't know what I was doing. But I learned to just relax into the experience as much as you can. Um, right, because I think that there would be, like, a temptation to, like, take control. Like, you, like everything everything has to be managed because someone's dying. Right. Like, this is a big deal. Like, we live our whole lives, and this is the inevitable moment that we all kind of, maybe not dread, but it's, like, something that we don't look forward to. And someone's going through it, so this better be, like, micromanaged to the T. And, and we don't, there'd be, like, a really big fear of not doing it right. Right. Well, there was a big fear. And there was a big fear of that in multiple times going forward for me as I learned how much I didn't know. Like, in hindsight, my mom wouldn't have had to be on the floor. I, I knew better how to manage those things. Um, She wasn't hurt, by the way. But she didn't have the strength to get herself up, and she didn't believe how weak she was. Similar to the artist story where I had to keep saying, you can't get up. You're going to fall. Um, there's a personality, and it's not everyone, but those tenacious people are tenacious. And they don't believe you when you tell them that they're not okay. My mother said to me one day laying on the couch, um, I believe it was Saturday, and she passed away in the wee hours Monday morning, and she said, what is wrong with me? And I said, well, Mom, I, I think it's your cancer. I said, I really think it's at the point where you're just really feeling it. And she sincerely meant this. She was frustrated. She said, well, why didn't somebody tell me? Well, Zach knows Grandma Lewis, how, how in the world she could hear something seven different ways but not have it sink in. But I'll tell you, exactly, yeah. he's got that mom. Sorry, Zach. But um, it was just interesting to watch that re response. Like, And then she questioned, I heard her when I moved the hospital bed into the guest room, she questioned everybody that came, why are, Why do I have to go to the guest room? Did they really say I have to do that? Like she was wondering if I was overreacting. 
you know. But um, right. that experience so, was was okay in the end. So there is there is a a we talked about like being afraid of doing it wrong, um, or, or not necessarily like having approached it the right way. Is, is there like a time where like because you've been responsible for staff managing this too? Mm-hmm. Has there been a time when you really come across like it not happening right? And you having to like step in and make sure it happens right? Yeah, there's a story there. Um, it was a man named Howard. Um, the staff was frustrated because Howard was very picky, um, and he carried that with him to kind of his deathbed. Um, we catered to people. That was who we were, especially there. We catered to people, and they were getting frustrated. And one day, I always kept my Crocs under my desk, so I had a pair of shoes that were, like, not sandals that I could throw on and go to work if I had to. I put my Crocs on, and I just went down the hall. I was so frustrated, and I, I still the aid, never mind. This is my room now. <laughs> I went in, shut the door, and pretty soon my assistant, her name was Patty, came in in her Crocs, and we just took over his care and – it was sweet, and I'm so glad I did that because he was so appreciative, and he thanked us for loving him and for caring for him, and he knew the difference. And um, he wasn't talking much, but he would just thank you for caring. Very, very quiet, very calm. People know. People know. And don't ever assume if you're caring for someone that they don't, they don't know and that they don't realize they're having tender care because they do. But he was one. He was one that it wasn't going to get done right if I didn't do it myself, which is kind of my mantra for life, by the way. <laughs> right. No, that's actually something that you mentioned when you were doing your short snippet that you did for us. Um, it yeah. was that you're kind of a control freak. And uh, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, you call yourself a control freak. Uh, and I think of what a control freak would say if they're just being like, and just like no, 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 I just care a whole lot. I care a whole bunch about it getting done right. Um, are there times where you being really invested, I guess I would say, in getting it done right or being a control freak has made it hard to lead a team who are doing the same thing that you're doing? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I want to say no. <laughs> because because the, the idea is that like, it sounds like you're really bought into being an expert at this. Yes. And because this kind of work is – it's not hard to become a to, – to get entry level into this kind of work. It's not a, it's not a huge hurdle. Um, yeah. And so the, the demographic of people that you're going to pull are going to be able to get legally to a place where they can do this, but maybe as far as capacity or intelligence or compassion, they're just not really there with you. And the idea of being an expert and providing excellence, as you said, you don't want it to be a buzzword. You want yeah. it to be something that we actually achieved. And so has that ever gotten between you and your goals where you had like a team of people who didn't maybe care about excellence as much as you? Well, I'm going to be honest and I don't, I'm doing what I was born to do. And there is nothing that I would rather do than walk, especially a saint because I'm a person of faith. So walking someone that shares that faith clear to the gate, right to the gate where you're holding that hand and the other hand is stepping in to take the hand of someone in heaven. Oh my goodness. Like it's amazing and it's a calling and it's, um, I hope I get to do that again in my life for like a lot. I hope that as my career 
um, kind of wind down. I don't know what my future holds, but I would love to do that again. And yes, nobody does it as well as I do. And um, I'm sure some do, but I'm going to tell you what's come natural to me isn't something you can teach. And it's not braggadocious, I hope, because we're in an interview and now I can't go back and take it back. But it's um, it has to come from your heart and soul. It has to. Otherwise, you're giving them dosages of medication every two hours and you're turning them every two hours and you're making sure their lips are moist. But you're not touching their soul. You're not you're not doing those little extras. You're not doing the diffuser in the room to make them calm. You're not finding out from the family what kind of music they liked. And those little things make a huge difference. And um, you get to know them. You get to know them through death in a different way. I recently... And I'm going to call it the privilege, but it's still pretty raw. Um, my uncle passed away, and he was in the hospital. And um, it became apparent that he wouldn't live, but they let him stay in the hospital um, with hospice. But Hold on hosp- just one second. That truck's kind of loud. I'm so sorry about that. No, you're, you're fine. You're fine. So right, go ahead. he was in the hospital, and um, they brought hospice in, but they let us stay in that hospital room. But... They use nurses at the hospital, and those nurses didn't know how to do death and dying because they're doing living. That they they don't do hospice, and so I I got to teach a couple nurses some stuff about hospice. Now we might have led them to believe that I ran a hospice down here. We didn't mean to. They just knew I ran. They knew I was an executive director working with the aging. And when I talked to them about you know my work with hospice, I think that they misunderstood my status, so to speak, because. They came to me for a lot of things, but I knew, I knew the stuff and I taught them how to watch and make sure that his foot was calm. Not like if someone's toe, they just start to move their toes lightly. That's the first sign of a little agitation before it gets out of hand. You watch for a mildly furrowed brow, not, not, not anything serious. As soon as it starts to mildly furrow, furrow, it's time to help them with their anxiety. And this nurse stood there and watched that. And she said, do you think he's okay now? And I, my cousin was laughing because the nurse is asking me, it's something anyone can learn, you guys. I am not a nurse. I just, I love people. I want every moment of their last hours and days to be as good as they can be. And um, you you can really touch a family in those hours. They they came in to give him a bath. And first my cousin said, nah, don't, you know, you don't need to bother. And I said, would you go ahead with that, though? And she did, and we didn't talk about why. But when he passed away... And my aunt came to hug him. He smelled good. And you have so much opportunity to make such a difference in a family. Um, you can, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm real good at trusting that to somebody else. So I don't know if that remotely answers your question. Yeah. No. It sounds like it sounds like what you're trying to do there is you're trying to make an experience. Yeah. Um, that Death is an inevitable outcome. We know it's coming. And it sounds like you have worked your mind into being able to devise developing that final experience into something that is not an afterthought. Yes. Like it is something that when it, when it comes, you are the planner. Like there are people who are, can take wedding photographs and there are people who can take graduation photographs and then there are people with smartphones that can take pictures. And the difference is that people who take these specific kind of photographs, when they take the picture, they picture someone looking at that picture for the rest of their life. 
It's very yeah. different. It's a very different. And so you're designing memories. And so yeah. what what you're doing in that situation is when I hear you explaining it, when I hear you getting choked up, when I hear you thinking through, you know, go ahead and give him a bath or, you know, it's you're, you're really taking the time to step outside of the moment and say, okay, this is a family's like person. This is not room number 15 that we got to get ready because we have someone coming in to fill this room as soon as this person passes away, which is a temptation. There's a temptation there, and I know that because I've worked in, with delinquent youth, and right. when we have a backlog of people that you need to get through so you can hit like quotas and stuff like that, it yeah. becomes stressful. It becomes really stressful because you got to fulfill your licensing agreement. And mm-hmm. when you can step out of that and be like, no, this is John. John was a whatever. His family loves him. Here are his children, and I want them all to have a fantastic memory. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a really painful thing to go through because what you have to do to do it right is understand. Yeah. And to understand means you got to feel it. And yeah. it sounds like you felt it. And <laughs> right. And 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 it sounds like you felt it 66 times. Actually, now I'm at 67 because of my sweet uncle. <laughs> but um, I still wouldn't have anyone else do it for the world, you know. Um, I don't know. You thought I would keep talking, didn't you? Well, yeah. no. I'm just I'm I'm thinking through this. This is a really it's a really interesting skill set. Um, so so when it's something that families don't get the chance to do well. Because you only do this twice. You have two parents, typically, you know. And by the time you're good at it, you've at least lost one of them. You may, maybe you got pretty good at it while one was passing away, but probably not yet, you know. And I think it's something that we, we could honor way more, way better than we do. And hospice has its place and they provide you the medications and the phone call support and all of that. Um, and occasionally you'll get that nurse that wants to provide an experience. They're there. They're they're out there. But um, it's it would be a really great thing for families to have someone to help them walk through this. I think it would be, uh, um, well, it's like I said, I hope that in my life I get the opportunity to do this for more people. But you talked about feeling it. And there was a song. I, I drove a golf cart to work at Maranatha Village. Like, it was a whole big retirement community, and I had to live there. I was, like, in my 40s, right, when I started. But um, I drove a golf cart to work, and every time somebody died, I drove out around the ponds and played, um, Zach may know better, is it Coldplay um, Superman? It's I can't stand right, to right. fly. I'm not that naive. Because it felt like you had to be on through that whole experience because somebody's memories depended on it being right. Um, Somebody stepping into the next side the most comfortable way possible depended on all the decisions being right. And I think that's where the weight of wanting to do it myself came in. And then that's where my song came in. (laughs) Right. And so as you're going through this process, um, you move from one facility, the Maranatha Manager talking about, um, and what what happens here? There's this transition between Maranatha and what was the next place that you went well, to? I spent five months at Lakewood Ranch at Inspired Living because I wanted to connect more closely to memory care. Um, I love memory care. I really needed to be the executive director. 
And so I did that five months. It was a brand new building. We put the program together, got everything in place. Um, and I wouldn't say it was a bad experience. I really learned a lot. I enjoyed my time. But then I moved back into a nonprofit um, assisted living, but it was a bigger one. It was 96 beds. Maranatha was only 20. So there probably will never be another Maranatha Manor in my heart. It was a consuming, um, wear all the hats kind of position. And once I went to take 96 beds, I had a team of directors and I needed to make sure they all were doing their thing. And um, there were still those favorite residents where you stopped in their room and you spent time, but it it wasn't the it wasn't the death and dying side anymore. It was the living side, making sure that their lives are as good as they can be. And so I've experienced that side as well. But I will tell you, if I was to choose my favorite, it would be that death and dying side, which maybe that makes me weird, Zach, but. Um, it's a very special time in someone's life, in a family's life. I, I actually don't think it's weird. And the reason I don't think it's weird is because I would never be able to do it. And I know some people have to be able to. Um, it's it's really interesting to me that uh, what you explain as something you are passionate about, someone else would see as morbid. Yeah. Um, or what, what you say is your life, you were born for this. I mean, other people would explain your job as executioner. You know, you are the last hand to touch that person before they pass away. I mean, like, who who wants to go to bed with that in their repertoire? And and you're, like, sitting there raising your hand. Like, oh, me, pick me, pick me. I want to do that. Because yeah, um, I want to do it right. <laughs> right. And there, there's a there's a weird passion in there. I, I call it weird because I don't understand it. But it's it's not weird, I guess. I guess it's just appropriate for you. You have this you have this this specific passion. Yeah for doing people right. Um, and it didn't, it didn't, I know it didn't start with the elderly. I know that when you work, you work with delinquent youth, there was an element of that there as well. And I know that you have a whole lifetime worth of stories there and experiences that could be a whole other conversation. And when you ran a daycare, just kidding around, um, there's the name of the daycare. Uh, there's, there's a whole story of kids there. Remember Chance? Yes. I think of Chance all the time. Talk about Chance for a second. The little Down Syndrome kid. He was the coolest kid. And I love that. I love when families have a special needs child and they just make him so cool. And um, they're not ashamed. Like, he's, he's their world. And this little Chance was their world. He wore a chain on a, was it his wallet? Did he have a wallet and a leather jacket? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his cool, name was man. Chance because they took a chance on him. They knew he was going to have a B Down syndrome before he was born. And she she did not want to abort the baby, and she wanted to take a chance on him, so they named him Chance. And we had the kind of privilege of having him in our lives for a while. So, For whatever reason, I have that memory of when the fire truck came to our house. Yeah. When the daycare was, and he was so excited. and. I wasn't that much older than him, I don't think. No, Maybe. you kind of were a daycare age kid for a period of time while we had the daycare. Yeah. So, there you go. No, and, and the only reason I, I, that came to mind right now is that this seems to be, like, like, I love it when there's a special needs kid who is treated special. Yeah. Um, I love it when someone is on their way out the door and I get to walk them out with dignity. Um, these are These are roles that people 
almost like to imagine don't exist. These are these are the janitorial jobs of humanity, uh, where we tend to like we we close the building down and they come at night and they take care of all of our garbage and magically our trash can is empty at our desk in the morning. Um, I experienced that at work, um, and I try to leave notes for them and stuff like that because of that reason. See? But this is this is what I'm talking about though is that they they there's it's it's an impo- it's an invisible an invisible service that if it didn't exist. Um, we would we would we would just not know how special or how important these last moments are. Like if you couldn't tell these stories, uh, I I don't know who else I would talk to about them except for an EMT, and their stories are going to be very different than yours. Yeah, they're they're going to be a lot more trauma based. Right. Um, but you your stories, your stories are so peaceful. These stories you tell are very peaceful, and I'm sure they're not all that way. Um, and I, 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 I did not experience, um, I experienced one person who struggled, but she, they tell stories about how people wait for someone or they wait for permission to go. And I used to kind of roll my eyes at that, but I'm telling you, there is some weirdness there where if you tell someone that so-and-so is coming and, you know, just they'll be here in a few hours, um, you can watch them calm and wait. I had a lady who started, I love this interview. I had a lady, I'm, re- I'm remembering things. Um, her name was Dorothy. And one morning, she called me to her room and she said, I'm going to heaven today. And I was like, yeah, okay. She said, I want to have a party. I would like all the residents to come to my room. So they went down and sang, and she told everybody goodbye. And it turned out some old family friend was staying in the little hotel there in the retirement community. She She wanted me to get them to come over, and they did. And I went and sat down with her, and I said, Dorothy, what will you do if you fall asleep tonight and wake up here in the morning? She goes, oh, don't even say that. And I'm telling you, that woman had some kind of <laughs> some kind of something because she passed away that night. And it, wow. it was, I said, I hope, I hope I'm that woman that's so tuned in to what's going on that I say, wow, this is my last day. How cool. You know, like that you know that. I don't know if it's cool that you know that, but I might because my view of death and dying is what it is. I say how cool, you know, make it a great day. But and I dealt with a lot of people who had a lot of hope. And I think that does bring peace, you know, um, with my own father. Um, my brother and I sat by his bed and he had been pretty much unconscious for three days. And um he was a pastor and then had been a chaplain at a children's hospital and then at a prison, but he had dementia. And at one moment during those three days, he opened his eyes and they cleared and he just turned his head to the side and our eyes met and he just had one tear just ran out of his eye. And it was like this really spiritual moment of connection with my dad, you know, and then he with dementia, with Alzheimer's, you can watch people's eyes clear and then go away again. There's something about that when you work with them. And he did that. But while the chaplain came in and was praying with him, he started taking those last breaths. As people pass away, it's almost like typically their breaths just slow and slow. And um, sometimes you're almost fooled because you think they're not going to take another breath, and then they do because it's been so many seconds. And he was doing that, and every time we thought he was gone, I just kind of touched his head, and he would take a big breath. And I finally said, Dad, 
we're not trying to keep you. We're just walking you clear to the gate. And the next time you stop breathing, I'm not going to touch you. It's okay. And he went. And it was um, beautiful. It was beautiful. So I've never heard that. There are beautiful moments in death, just like in life, I guess. So. Right, and I, I guess, I guess the, the thing that I've never thought about, and I'm thinking about now when, I, when you talk to me about these things, is that it's um humanity is a really interesting thing. We have like this great potential for for being amazing. We also have the potential for not being amazing, mm-hmm. but because we are capable of doing that, it seems that when when someone is dying. If they're treated with dignity and they're given the opportunity to go out in an amazing way, we also have potential for that. It's not just this like terrifying, I don't know what the next moment's going to be because I'm going to close my eyes and wake up either not existing if you believe that, or I'm going to exist, I'm going to be maybe in hell, or I'm going to be in heaven, or maybe I'm going to meet some magic alien creature, whatever you believe. And so some people, I think that when they engage death, they, they end up, I, I've always imagined it being terrifying. Even like as a Christian, I imagine it being terrifying because I might in my head have this idea of like what eternity is going to be, like I have an idea of what it's going to be, but then you're going there. And yeah. The idea is that I'm going to, I'm going to untether from my body and I'm going to go to this thing that I have no idea what it actually is like. And just the, I like the anxiety of that, that last second, I picture for me being terror. Not because like I'm afraid, I'm afraid of God or because I'm afraid right. of like, but this just like this is un- untethering and entering into this absolutely unknown. Um, it seems scary, and with the way that you explain it is that um, it sounds like it sounds like it it's not necessarily terrifying. It sounds like like the, the, a lot of these people, the stories you're telling, they're not freaking out. They're they're kind of just like letting go and moving on. And do you think it's because they're just weak? They're just so weak and they have no energy. I or... think if you think about whenever you've been like really sick, I'm sure there is that weakness there where you just, you know, kind of fade. Um, I've had pneumonia four times and I have had that kind of sickness. You've been really sick this last few months. And there's that you just can't stay awake exhaustion. And so I think there is that weakness where the body just doesn't have any more to give, you know. Um, but I don't know. I had a lady that started to tell us the things in her room that needed maintenance before she passed away. That was a different door. <laughs> and she laid in bed the day she passed away. So there's not always that weakness, right? She said, you need to get John Thorpe in here. That's what, it's the name of one of the guys. You need to get John Thorpe in here to paint the bottom of that bathroom cabinet before someone else moves in here. <laughs> and she just oh, was She was a riot. Like, I loved her. She used to wish she would look bad. Because she was always just really looked good. And she said, just once I'd like people to say, Dorothy, you look terrible. Are you okay today? Because no matter how bad she felt, she looked good. <laughs> so I guess it isn't a 100% people just get so weak that they fade away, you know. But um, I think there is definitely typically a lot of weakness. People don't eat. You know, they quit drinking. And so there's a natural weakness and fading that happens. So you then you went from Maranatha, you went to that smaller, smaller, smaller facility, and then you've you've now worked yourself into executive director of. Uh, you've had so many different jobs. 
I actually don't know what your job is right now. I'm in top of my head. I'm an executive director of operations. It's a 96 bed building. Um, I am with an amazing company that kind of just lets us be autonomous. So that's why it's director of operations as well as, you know, executive director. Um, I do things beyond just running the building. So, um, I love what I do. I love the freedom. I feel like in this type of position, I have somewhat lost touch with the residents. Um, it's like I've pivoted into making a good experience for my staff and my directors. Um, and through them to the trickles down to the residents because we're going to have a certain standard in my buildings, but I don't get to do that bedside handholding, um, that I used to love so much. And I, I've actually contemplated just through the last interview with Zach how how that would look in a building like this because I still work on a laptop. I don't really use a big desktop machine because I like to go work around the building and just see what you hear, you know. And I could still go sit in a residence room and work if they were passing away like I used to. And I just um, I've wondered about maybe reconnecting that way a little bit even where we are now. But I I love the door open and that they stop in, and I do try to connect that way, but it's different. It's different now, and I don't know if it's different bad. It's just different. So, but I'm affecting a whole building, you know. I'm so that's good. That's really all I had planned for us to talk about. I wasn't sure exactly how long it was gonna go. Really glad okay. to have you on. Um, I might have you on again sometime if you want. Uh, I, I'm sure I'll come across more ways to kind of come at this thing that you do, but I really appreciate you coming on, uh, your insights and everything you had to offer. Uh, the Night Watch thanks you. I mean, this is, it always feels, it feels weird to me because it's almost like exploiting people. Like you've been no, through some trauma. Tell me about it. <laughs> this is good though because for people that live this and that work with people and that take it home and that drive a little long way around listening to a song because of the kind of night they had. I think what the night watch is, is awesome for that, for those people. And maybe it gives other people um, some insight into understanding why in the world someone would choose to work in this type of field where it consumes you. No. Anyway, maybe you'll save some marriages. Maybe spouses will understand what the other spouse does. No. Right? No, that's kind of the idea. Is I actually have planned an interview with a husband and wife that works in juvenile service together at one point. Okay. And so I'm interested in hearing that dynamic of how it affected their marriage and, you know, taking work home. And we got to stop taking work home. So I think that's going to be a really good one that's coming up here soon. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, uh, again, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for your kind words. Thanks for being an early adopter of the Night Watch. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, have a good day. Thanks. Alright, if you listened to this entire podcast and were able to glean something from it, please go ahead and give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. If you're listening on Spotify, go ahead and click that follow button. It really helps and lets me know if you're out there. If you're interested in getting more involved in the community, there's a Facebook group called The Night Watch, aptly named. Go ahead and run over there. Give it a like, give it a follow, and you can go ahead and keep in touch with everything that's going on with The Night Watch. If there's a story you'd like to share to the Night Watch, you can go ahead and email me at nightwatchpodcast at outlook.com. You don't need to schedule an interview or anything like that. If you feel uncomfortable meeting with me, you can go ahead and send an audio file or just write a letter. 
I can read that on here and make sure everyone gets to hear your story. I hope it goes without saying. In case it doesn't, thank you for being part of the Night Watch.